Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadeen Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. Well, welcome back to another episode, actually a very special episode of Protect and Serve because I'm joined by a former, I'll say a former, a podcast colleague, somebody who does the podcasting and interviewing police officers right up and down the country, you know, because I think, like me, has a huge love of the job which is policing, is concerned as to where it is today and what we want to do to turn it around to ensure that it gets back to the place it should be in terms of public confidence, in terms of fighting crime, ensuring that people, you know, the needs and expectations of the community are met. So without further ado, let me introduce Ian Donnelly from the podcast Tango Juliet Foxtrot. Ian, good evening. How are you? Hi, Ollie. Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you very much. And thanks for inviting me on to your, uh, your podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, like you, uh, I started doing this because I'm really passionate about policing. So having spent 30 years of my life doing it uh, in a variety of different roles, I was feeling thoroughly despairing about what was happening to policing towards the end of my career, having seen the damage that was caused. You know, I don't want to jump into being very political right at the start, but, but frankly, since 2010 specifically, where Theresa May and David Cameron made a complete mess of the organisation. And we're now sadly seeing the results, I think, a lot of 
the decisions that were made during that period of time. So I went on to then write the book, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, uh, which for those who you know, know policing well, TJF is a well-known expression used by police officers all over the country, and I believe all over the world, actually, in English-speaking countries. like. Um, and uh, setting out my kind of thoughts around why policing was in the state that it was and uh, and then you know hopefully ending on a slightly more optimistic note about saying okay things are really really bad but this is how we think i, th I think we can maybe try and recover um to bring policing back to where it was pre-2010 so so yeah like you passionate about policing and uh, the podcast um, I'm on, I think it's episode 75 now of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, um, interviewing a lot of people who have done some really amazing things and uh, I've got a really interesting story to tell. And that's the important part is in terms of, you know, my concept talks about ordinary people doing extraordinary jobs because policing is an incredible vocation. There is so much asked of policing, more so today than there has ever been. So for me, it's quite cathartic to hear some of the incredible stories, which I think are important to share because there is an awful lot of good men and women getting up, getting dressed every day and going out there and doing some incredible work. So it's, um, yeah, like you, it's, it comes from a, a, an incredible place of love and care for an organisation that I was you know, very proud to be associated with. But we have a third colleague with us this evening in Stephen Keogh recently retired from the Metropolitan Police incredible experience right across London as an inspector in homicide Stephen good evening welcome hi Ollie thank you very much for having me hi Ian hi Stephen Stephen just give us quickly a praises of your background and your knowledge of policing across London because I know it's extensive so I think our listeners would love to get that context yeah so I joined in 91 I did 30 years which you said retired recently, but when I'm thinking about that, it's like it's slowly getting away. I think last time I spoke to you, it was like a couple of months. Now it's 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 getting on for like it's not two years, but it's just over a year. Um, time flies, isn't it? Um, yeah, so I did 30 years, most of it as a detective. Um, so I became a DC in 2000, um, did some time on the anti terrorist branch, um, and then over a third of my career. Um, investigating murder, um, which is where I found my feet. I, I, it was something I, I, I found my calling. It may sound corny, but I found my calling investigating murder. Um, and since I retired, I can't let it go. So I've, um, I still do things around murder, and I published a book called Murder Investigation Team, which looks at how murders are really investigated, not not the the, the, the version you see on TV. Um, and that went well. And I'm writing another book after that got picked up by publishers. So. Yeah, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying retirement. I'm trying not to do too much. I don't want to stress myself out. So so the concept for this evening's chat was is that, you know, I, I get an awful lot of positive feedback, but one, two or three emails that I got in the last couple of months was, Oliver, you focus on all the great stuff and the good stuff behind policing, but, you know, it takes difficult conversations, courageous conversations to also challenge some of the bad stuff and, and undoubtedly um, policing in the UK, as Ian quite rightly pointed out, since 2010 has been struggling, but more so in the past 12, 18 months, couple of years, that the Metropolitan Police has really had some difficult issues to try and contend with. And this evening, what I wanted to put to the two of you is if we were Sir Mark Rowley, who has an incredibly difficult job at the moment as leading the Met into this new era of change, 
if we were Smart Rally, what would be the three most important things that you'd want to implement? And Ian, I'll start with you. It is a difficult job. He's got some significant challenges and some very steep climbs to make. What would be one of the first things that you would consider taking up the office of Commissioner of Police for the Met? Yeah, so I think um, there's been an awful lot of talk about, um, you know, getting back to basics and all this kind of stuff. But I do I do think that, um, you know, one of, the, one of the key things is making sure that we're recruiting the right people. Um, and... And I do think that the rush to recruit under this Operation Uplift has potentially is going to create some challenges. I mean, before I go into the, my sort of first point around uh, selection and initial training, I, I, do, I do think it's important to point out that I do think meaningful change over the long, even the medium or medium term, is going to be very difficult without improvements, significant improvements to paying conditions. Uh, and also um, uh, try and protect police officers from a lot of the meddling that's gone on over the last sort of many, many years from politicians and a, and a very hostile media as well. So I do think that um, uh, trying to turn this oil tanker of policing around in the current circumstances with very poor pay and very poor uh sort of long-term conditions of employment so you've got an organization there that they're not allowed to they're not allowed to strike and uh but it but it seems that that has been t somewhat taken advantage of by politicians because they know that there's nothing literally nothing that the police can do to push back against some of the really extreme stuff that has gone on um to damage the organization since 2010 so you've got Officers who are now joining uh, on much worse pay, uh, much less attractive to stay in the organisation for a long period of time. The pensions now, you've got to wait a lot longer to get a pension. When you do get a pension, it's not as good as it used to be. So so that's the kind of context or backdrop to where policing currently is. But, but I do think the first point for me is definitely a sense of we need to make sure we're selecting uh, and recruiting the right people um, and then we need to be putting them into an initial training uh, program that is sufficiently robust to be able to identify those people who are just not cut out for policing. Um, I do think whilst I accept that residential training schools would be difficult for those who've got caring responsibilities um, but I do think that a full time, it may not need to be ne necessarily residential, but a full time sort of lengthy training course where experienced instructors and, and your peers have got a really good opportunity to have a look at people and say, are these the sort of people we want in the organisation? Do their values align with the values that we want in the organisation? Are they exhibiting behaviours that are causing us concern? And it's also something there for me about building that really strong sense of team, selfless teamwork and a commitment to doing something that is bigger than yourself. And I do think that with all of the sort of university training courses, the degree programmes, it's, it's never going to be a substitute in my mind for having a class of people coming together every single day over a long period of time 
to um, build a very cohesive uh, unit. Steve, has policing become too academia-focused in the last five to ten years? Well, if I'm honest, I, 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 can't, I don't know 100% because when I finished my career, I was so far detached from what was going on when people were coming in. I was a DI in a murder team. So everything I talk about is stuff I've heard rather than me being being involved in it. Um, but if I, the more and more I see the emphasis being put on degrees, see, I, I, me personally, I, I come from a, a comprehensive school. Um, I, I brought up on council estates. And when I joined the police, it, it, I remember very early on an inspector of mine telling me, that I've taken it, taken to it like a duck to water, um, and it's not by trying to be big-headed. It was just, it, it's just, it was just because for me, I was policing the people that I know. I was, I was put in an area that I grew up in, and I knew that I knew them. I knew, I knew, I knew the, I knew, the, I knew the criminals. I knew the people who were reporting the crimes. I could relate to them, and it allowed me to police them well, um, and. I worked with many people that came from different backgrounds that were more um, academic than me, who weren't as good as as being a police officer. Um, and the the bare facts are, policing you cannot teach policing in a classroom. You can give someone the law, you can give someone, um, for instance, go, go in and search in someone. You can tell them how they can do go wisely. You can tell them. You can you can tell them some safety tips, but actually learning how you go about searching people, how you identify the right people to search, you can only learn that on the street. So for me, academia, it seems to me the people that are pushing academia are the people that have got a vested interest in it. And the people that are fighting against it are the people that have actually done the job. That's what I, on the outside looking in. And I, I would, I'm going to tend to lean to the people that are doing the job. Um, and I, 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 there, there has to be, um, uh, if, if you're giving people the tools to be more professional, that must help as in, um, I, my, my children came through training school, very different to we did. Um, and they were given, uh, C, uh, I can't remember what it's called. You have to do some certificate before you come and join. And people were turning up and they didn't even know what the caution was and then they're being taught how to do police work um so we went from we went from what we did a 20 weeks training school where you got the ground in you got taught the law etc to to that that was bad and it seems to me we've now gone completely the other way whereas we've got people turning up who can't don't even know what the caution is and now we're saying well they need to have degrees that's not to me there's a happy medium and it's where we were we had 20 weeks in a training school where you come out you knew the law they give you the basics to go out and do the police work, and, and that's where you learn to do the job on the street. You cannot learn to do police work in a, in a university classroom. It's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, you can't. You can make someone better around the law and, and know the ins and outs of legislation, but again, that doesn't, doesn't equate to being a good police officer. Um, that, for me, that, and, and, and as I say, I come from a different background, so I'm never really going to be pro-degrees. <laughs> pro, um, um, if you've got someone else in here who come from a different background to me, I know they'll say something different. So it's, it's all a matter of opinion, isn't it? But to me, knowing what a police officer does and how what how to become an effective police officer, a degree has got nothing to do with it. 
It's an interesting point because it's one that I've made observations, as have you, for people that, and Ian, you've been quite vocal online and in social media in terms of this whole degree process. And it's been quite interesting to watch from outside people that want the degree process to stay how quite i don't know it, it it gets quite hostile in terms of them defending that process do you think do, what's your view on the on the academia around universities taking over the whole degree process for policing and education of future constables of police yeah i mean it is a very divisive subject and you're absolutely right i have been quite um vocal and uh straight talking about about my views on all of this on on social media um, I think that a lot of the people who are most um, get most upset about any criticism of the current process are those who've got a financial uh, vested interest in 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 delivering a lot of that learning, and they obviously feel threatened by the potential or the prospect of uh, police training going back to something slightly different or maybe slightly more reflective of what it was when 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 we did our training so there is there's definitely a, a, a an element of turkeys and christmas there isn't there um but from my own point of view i was a graduate when i joined in 1989 i was quite unusual as being a graduate in those days and um and frankly it was of no benefit what's whatsoever to me um being a a new police officer in the Metropolitan Police. If anything, actually, it was a handicap uh, because I over overthought everything. I maybe slightly intellectualised things that were really very basic common sense to an awful lot of people who had come from uh, maybe the sort of background that, that Steve had come from or um, maybe coming out of the military or whatever. And, and I remember I used to get a lot of piss taking about some of the things I would say and do in the early part of my career. And it was only really when I went to a very busy part of South London, I went to L District in South London, uh, when I finished my probation, that my learning, my, re my learning really started then. And um, so I, I do think that, um, uh, you know, do, do I think there's a... There's benefit to giving people a, a degree or a master's program or something, maybe if they're looking to specialise in the police or maybe to take promotion. You know, it, 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 I would be much more sympathetic to saying if you want to be an inspector or above, then you have to have a degree um, uh, to sort of make it very clear that you, you need you need people in those roles who are able to think a little bit more strategically but at the rank of constable and i would suggest at the rank of sergeant it's really about a lot of common sense good communication skills and and some life experience and and i really don't think those are things that um when, when some of these university lecturers tell me uh what the sort of subjects that they're teaching i'm thinking well what good is that at two o'clock in the morning when you're going to a violent domestic or when you're dealing with someone who's in real crisis it's 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 uh, it's all it's all very nice to have that information but it's a very little practical benefit i would suggest so i, th I suppose that leads us on to the second important thing that we consider i think we're all in agreement that one of the most important factors the first things is recruitment 
it's training and i think in 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 supporting that's also retention which i think is summed up by improving improving conditions improving pay and giving police officers a better opportunity to live a more comfortable lifestyle in, in what is a very very difficult job steve if if you were sir mark rowley what would probably be one of your second important tasks that you'd want to carry out to turn as ian describes it this this rather large tanker of policing to get back on the the right course again yeah so so he essentially is an employer and he has employees and i think it's important if you want to get the best out of your employees you have to understand them and you have to you have to try and make their environment so they're as i sound corny but they're happy a happy employee is going to be a better employee and at the moment they're not the morale in the police is probably as low i know we always say this don't we it's never been so low but i think genuinely it's never been so low and what certainly towards the end of my career every year they'll be coming out with um, a survey asking people um, their opinions on the minutiae of the job to the to the to the to the, to the, to the micro and uh, so macro and did they do anything with it i don't think they ever did i don't think they, I, I never i never got a sense that I, if i put if i pour my heart out into this survey some change is going to happen i think i think he needs to start listening to his staff and understanding what it is that's making people unhappy why are people leaving in droves and when they are leaving have a proper exit interview don't just pay it lip service there's uh, someone on my my partner's in a job and some she'd left a job after 20 years no no one asked her why why are you leaving after 20 years as a detective on a murder team you've got some huge skills and experience what's made you what's made you take that step nobody asked her i I mean it's a bit different but i left after 30 years in retirement nobody spoke to me and it's it, it it has to be if you're going to get the best out of people you have to you have to make sure that they're in the right frame of mind to deliver and a miserable person is not going to be as effective as a happy contented person so so for me it's not just about making the public happy it's about about looking after your employees too and understanding why it is people are leaving and why they're unhappy and not and like i say not just paying lip service to it but understanding it and doing something about it. Ian, the police has been historically very defensive on a number of issues, both to do with crime and and to do with its own performance and has, you know, has thrown up barriers and, and deflected bits and pieces. Do you think it's because I don't think they want to hear the real answers when people are leaving? Is it something they've just got to get better at accepting criticism? Well, I suppose um, there's something there, isn't there, about being a public sector organisation um, and it's a relatively uh, hierarchical organisation as well. Uh, and the terms and conditions of employment are, are created by uh, the Home Office, by government. Uh, there's very little flexibility in the current system in terms of how you reward people, how you retain people. Uh, you can have a situation where you can have a DC, for example, who is playing a really key role in a homicide investigation or numerous homicide investigations or someone who's extremely good at digital investigations and gathering evidence to bring offenders to justice uh, in very complex crimes. And yet, if they want to, you know, earn more money, there is 
only one way for them to do that, and that is to get promoted. But by definition, if they get promoted, they're going to have to stop doing the job that they love and that they're really, really good at. And they, they could weirdly find themselves sat in a custody block, um, thoroughly pissed off and thinking, well, what the hell am I doing here? So I think the organisation at, at a national level and this is not something that the police service can unilaterally do. It's something that, that would require some fairly radical transformative thinking. They need to find ways of rewarding people. There's far too many ranks for a start. I think, I think um, you know, if you look at other police forces around the world, you, you have this notion of sort of senior constables for want of a better word maybe who who have got the opportunity to maybe earn more to take on more responsibility within that rank at the sort of bottom of the uh, you know the hierarchy but still doing things that are highly valued um so we need to get away from this idea that that the only way that you can improve someone's take-home pay because let's face it that's why people come to work isn't it yes yes you want to do a job that is rewarding but equally if you're going to retain people particularly in a very competitive um, marketplace that we're seeing at the moment where uh, the private sector is able to offer people much better um, opportunities financially in terms of their lifestyle they're not having to work crap hours they're not having to work nights and all of this stuff. Um, so, so yeah, that we desperately need to have a, a, a grown-up conversation about remuneration. All I would say to that is um, I, I didn't join the police for money, and I don't think anybody really does join the police for money. And you know when you come what your terms and conditions are. If you if you were to really, just, just from the people that I know that are, are unhappy taking away the pensions thing because that really did knock people for six people that thought they were doing a 30 year career and suddenly had that changed but the majority of um moans or um complaints that i that i hear isn't really about money it's more to do with um pressure of work poor management um people feeling they're being taken advantage of um treated like children these are more of the complaints i hear than than the money itself um i no i agree i agree i i, I probably went down the rabbit hole of money a bit too much there you're absolutely <laughs> right all of the, all of the things that you've said there are 100 100% true and 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 certainly when i speak to ex colleagues of mine who made the, who made the change and who are now working in the private sector there were maybe PCs or DCs before and you're absolutely right it's that being treated like a grown-up being treated like an adult um, and and this hierarchical organization yes I get it if you're in a public order situation or certain situations you need to have that ability to say to people I want you to do this I want you to do this and I want you to do it now and there's no argument no discussion but there is definitely something there isn't there about people want to feel valued they want to feel that their opinion is listened to and far too often in policing and, and i saw this at pretty much every rank I, I was at through my career is that there are people further up that hierarchy who feel that 
because they are higher up that hierarchy, their opinion is trumps anybody else's opinion on anything. And you know, I can I can remember some terrible decisions being made by clueless chief inspectors and superintendents who frankly probably weren't even wouldn't even even have been particularly good sergeants but because they'd bullshitted their way to those ranks um they somehow felt that they needed to be listened to and and wouldn't listen to anyone else this is this is completely off topic i just i just gonna say this at the moment i'm writing a book about jack the ripper um, a modern day look at jack the ripper and i've been going through the police files and the commissioner at the time was uh, sir charles warren and one of the memos he's written to the home office he, he says in it and just a little bit of background on him he, he wasn't a police officer he was an army officer um, i think he did a bit of archaeology as well and he wrote in this memo if i had two days to spare and could get down there i'd solve it <laughs> and it's like i i, when I read that I thought, I, I just so I've, I've seen that so many times in the job now where there's this people because of what they've got on their shoulder they just they just think well I, I can do your job so much better than you because I've jumped through the hoops for promotion and it, and it, like I say this was this was 1888 and it hasn't changed it still goes on today not not wanting to single anyone out in particular but Ian would you agree that there are chief constables in the UK that do get it right in terms of understanding the pressures of their police if we look at Nick Elderly as an example He's a huge and passionate believer in recognising the challenges of mental health and what that plays on policing. He's a huge believer in making sure his staff are safe in terms of equipping them with operational equipment that they can deal with any situation that is presented to them. Is there, is there, are there lessons to be learned in terms of how other forces across the UK are carrying out this sort of HR role and looking after their people? Don't get me wrong. I've worked with many, many brilliant chief officers over the years. I think about people like Carl Folkes, who I used to work with very closely. He was the chief of North Wales. I've got many people who I worked very closely with in the West Midlands Police and, and surrounding forces. There's some brilliant chief officers, brilliant. But unfortunately, they are slightly outnumbered. Mm. I'm not, I wouldn't even like to put a percentage to this. They are slightly outnumbered by those who are the corporate clones who have jumped through the hoops, who have treated getting promoted as an end in itself. That is their job. They see getting promoted as their job. And then they get to uh, the most influential positions in policing. And and there's many, many, many of them. And I had to laugh the other day where there was one particular, I won't name this chief constable, but it was a one particular chief constable, a female officer, and that's nothing, that's, that is not a, a comment on female officers because I've worked with some fantastic female chief officers and I've worked with some terrible female chief officers and, and vice versa, male as well. But there was a particular um, of the chief officer who was pontificating in the national press about how we need to be kind and how we need to do this and do that. And, and then one of my ex-colleagues contacted me saying, oh, my God, this, this particular person was one of the biggest bullies they ever worked with. And so there's a lot of hypocrisy currently. There's a lot of chief officers out there who are saying the right things because they know that that, that is what people want to hear. But in terms of their own personal values, their own behaviour, historically, they definitely are not the sort of person who you'd want to be working for let's put it that way St- steve should the should the national police chiefs council and i i only 
use that kind of organisation because I know they kind of oversee policing across the country. Should they be concerned that nearly a thousand police officers in the UK applied for some of the Western Australian police vacancies in Australia? Is that should that worry us? Absolutely. I, I think any increase in police officers leaving should worry you because. I go back to the, 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 my first answer in, in terms of where do you learn the job, and you learn the you learn the job doing it. You don't learn the job in a classroom. So that, that if if all those thousand officers leave, you replace them with a thousand officers who've only got the classroom experience. And every single time that happens, you, you're, you're eroding your effectiveness as a police force. And it, it, it's I I I, I think. I think it's what at one point the job wanted. I think they wanted people to come and go naively, not understanding that coming and going means you're losing you're losing that experience that you cannot replace. It does, you can't replace it in a classroom. If someone leaves after ten years, it takes ten years to replace that person. Um, so yeah, I'd be I'd be hugely worried. Obviously, they've got the weather is <laughs> an advantage on us. I don't know if it's just just that, but. But yeah, I, 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 I mean, that's just a small. If you're saying a thousand there, that's just that's just one example, isn't it? How many others? And as and I, and I go back to these exit exit interviews, and not just paying them lip service, but really getting an understanding of what it is people why why are people wanting to leave, and what can we do to change that? And 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 I, I, something you said, Ian, about the um the just austerity and the changes and etc. T- to me personally, I, I I think that's that's a, that's a part of it, but I think the the bigger element to why things go wrong is is that is that management. I think the management within the police is poor, and it, it goes back to the promotion process of who are we promoting, how are we promoting them, why are these people getting promoted, um, and it, it it when I look back in my career. Where I've been unhappiest has never been because of cuts to budgets. It's because of the people above me making decisions that I feel um, and the people I'm working with feel aren't to the benefit of, of the job we're doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's that that is a very difficult one to to answer because the people that put that right are the people. Are the people <laughs> it's like turkeys voting for Christmas, isn't it? The people, the people that make the decisions up top, are the, pe- are the only people that can change that, and they've got their use with this route. So, I think we we could we we might as well just shout at the clouds because I don't I can't see that one changing. There are three there are three core areas that really Mark Rowley wants to focus on in in during his tenure, and he needs to turn them around pretty quickly. It's it's trust, uh, it's it's tackling crime, you know, specifically in London, and then you've got standards. Is there, if we look at standards first, which has obviously been the foremost, the greatest challenge of late with some of the most abhorrent actions of police officers that I think we'll ever come across, hopefully we'll ever come across. Ian, how does he start to tackle the standards in empowering his sergeants, inspectors, and to some extent superintendents from starting to manage their people and to start implementing the expectations of what is expected of people when they wear that uniform, when they carry out those duties? What's got to be done? Well, I think it. I think it starts with if you look at if you look at the uh, the split in terms of uh, where most of these issues appear to be, the, some of the worst issues really, I suppose, uh, the Wayne Cousins and the David Carricks and you know the the 
selfies of crime scenes and the WhatsApp groups and all this kind of stuff. I'm s sorry to say, I'm we, firstly, I've got to say we've got to be really, really careful that we don't just point the finger at um, con the constable rank because it sounds it's going to sound as if I'm just about to do that. But I just want to I just want to clarify that there is bad behaviour, I think, at every rank. But sadly, because of the nature of of the organisation, the uh, the vast majority of people in the organization it's got to be it's about 80 odd percent isn't it are at constable rank so on that basis uh first line supervision is incredibly important and sergeants and i know this is a thing it sounds like a bit of a cliche the sergeant rank is the most important rank in the service but it really really is and and i think um clearly there has been a lack of robust supervision at sergeant rank uh, there has been, if you, if you look at if you look at that uh, Louise Casey report that came out into standards, where they were identifying individuals who were coming back again and again and again uh, into the discipline system and and not being dealt with properly. Um, so I think the first one, the first and most important one for me is the sergeant rank, uh, supporting sergeants, sergeants understanding quite unambiguously what their job is to, the, the PCs and I said this in my book the PCs are not your mates you know if, if you want if you want to be uh, you can be friendly you can be approachable you can be supportive and all of those things but they are not your mates and and the minute you start treating them like your mates and turning a, a blind eye or deaf ear to bad behavior is the day that your credibility is dead in the water as a sergeant and uh, and you will never be taken seriously by the people who you're there to supervise and, and and what's even more damaging is when the rest of the team see you failing to deal with bad behavior and because most most PCs are good are good people and they behave themselves really well and it's incredibly demoralizing for other people on the team to see that happening so so yeah i think the rank that we really really need to focus on is the sergeant rank Stephen, yeah no 100 100 percent um I, I kind of equate it to what went on in the 90s um with corruption and the police force that you and i joined ian there were pockets of criminals within within the police force and the way they dealt with it is to make it clear to everybody. Was it in, in, uh, integrity is non-negotiable? Like I, I know it's a, it's one of those phrases that they come out with, but it was true. It's like I, I sort of look at it like a like a seesaw, um, where you're dealing with a problem. One one side is where you're coming down on it like a ton of bricks, and the other like you're coming down on it with a couple of feathers, and somewhere in the middle is a balance. But when you've got a real problem, you, you need you need to go on that side of the brick. You really need to come down and make it clear to people that we're not messing around anymore. Sergeants, this is these are the standards we expect, and that is the message you will you will give to your 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 the constables and you, that you supervise. And if you do that properly as a sergeant, you can still be friendly with people, but you just have to make it clear to them these are the standards, and these are the standards I expect to see. And if you step out of line. I, I will I will deal with you 
And as long as you've got that out in the beginning and everybody knows where they are, then nobody can be surprised when they when they make a stupid comment, they put something in a WhatsApp group, what, whatever it is. Well, actually, no, I, I've told you, and we're going to deal with it. But that's but that, firstly, that has to be a message that the sergeants fully understand. Then it has to be that, that a message that the sergeants give to their constables. And the sergeants need to know that they're going to be fully supported by, I think you've, you've, you've mentioned this, Ian. That is probably the most important thing because the moment that doesn't happen, when sergeants do stick their head above the parapet and start dealing with people, if they're not getting the support, then very quickly that will all fall down. Um, and, and, and back in the 90s, what they were trying to stop is the criminals that were, they were stealing drugs off of people and selling them to other drug dealers. They were they were the real problems, but but because of that seesaw effect, and they went completely the other way, then it it, it was your overtime and the mileage you booked, and they had to really clamp down on every all all, all, all the little bits of corruption. You can't see what I'm doing. The, the the bunny ears corruption to deal with the big one, and it's the same with this. So you you clamp down on the sexist, misogynistic, racist behaviour. In order to stop the public seeing the worst of that, the the the, the cousins and the carrots and everything else, and I I, I fear what's going to come out next because I, I don't think this is the end of it. Um, and, but in many ways, what we did in the nineties is where we were clamping down on it. It appeared then to the public that we have a real. This is such a corrupt police force. They must be really bad because they're arresting people for drug dealing, this, that, the other. But yeah, that's the that's the pill you have to swallow. You have to you have to do that. You have to go through the we we we're, we're dealing with these people and we're washing our and to get the trust of the public, you really have to wash your linen in in, in public. You have to show people that this is what we're doing, and and I think it's going to be the same with this. We we we've. I'm not saying we just discipline people for the sake of it, but in the end, if people can't if people can't behave themselves and they have to be disciplined, we make it clear people are losing their jobs over this. And the only way you're going to gain the public trust is by seeing that you're taking on and you're dealing with the the, the problem. And it really is the bulk of people in the in the police are constables, and it's their sergeants that are, that are supervising them. And as you say, and it's, it goes all the way up and down the ranks, but the bulk of it is going to be amongst that. So that's really where we need to get a grip. But what do we what do we do about what do we do about the senior officers yeah. who are? And we've all seen them. You know, we've got them in every force. The senior officers who use their rank as an opportunity to try and pester women for sex, uh, generally younger. Uh, you know. Uh, PC, so you'll have a superintendent or a chief superintendent who's got a real reputation as a as a bit of a ladies' man, you know. But but actually, they're abusing their authority by um, using that rank in order to, for sexual gratification. What 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 do you do about the officer who's got the reputation as the tyrant, you know, the senior officer, the, the superintendent or chief superintendent who who regularly rants and raves at people in meetings and screams and shouts at them bullying reducing people to tears so i don't think it's you know it is going to be inevitably it's going to be mainly the people at the bottom of the organization because mm. they make up the largest numbers but but we need to be really clear about what the values that we want from yeah. from everyone in the organization and i suppose where i suppose where i'm slightly nervous about this massive focus now on on uh sort of the hate crime misogynistic racist sexist stuff is that um unlike the corruption 
things that you were describing dishonesty is very is black and white isn't it if you steal if you steal money or if you claim over time that you didn't work it's absolutely black and white you either did it or you didn't whereas there's a lot more scope for subjective outrage um real or perceived when it comes to these other sorts of behaviors and i'm i'm hearing through people contact me um through the podcast to tell me all sorts of horror stories and and one of the one of the messages i got the other day was from someone who who is regularly now seeing amongst the the, the newest recruits um people who have clearly only come into the organization to cause trouble who have come into the organization with a massive agenda and they are they are complaining about everyone uh, uh, all of the time um and i heard another sort of horror story uh the other day about a an officer who um had seen their tutor constable um sort of quite roughly manhandling someone in the cell block because they were kicking off in the cell block and then the student officer arrested his his tutor constable in the cell block for on suspicion of assault um and you know so you think to yourself you know somewhere along all of this continuum of bad behavior there's the, the drug dealing the stealing the very obvious racism or bullying or whatever that's crystal clear it's crystal clear what needs to happen to those people isn't it but equally my fear is that that is going to turn into a deeply demoralized organization is now going to turn into something like the spanish inquisition where people are going to be getting disciplined or complained about for all sorts of things that that probably you know they shouldn't even be registering on the on the uh, on the outrage kind of um meter yeah but the, I, I i do get that um but discipline shouldn't be the first port of call all the time should it that that that's that, that there, there there has to be some um subjectiveness around what's being said and whatnot but i do i do feel that to, to me if 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 you wouldn't say something to your sister then don't say it to a fellow female police officer do you know what i mean it's it's that it's not it's not as black and white as as dishonesty and that but most sensible normal people know what's right or wrong um i think that that's the, those are the issues that for me we should be dealing with um yeah if if it's just someone was a little bit rude to me is is one thing but if someone's saying something outrageously sexist that's outrageously racist etc that, that that they're the things that, I, that 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 really should be being clamped down on um yeah
I see. I, 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 I've got two kids in the job. Um, daughter's twenty eight. My son's twenty five, and they're always doing overtime, and they, they see that as part of the job. So, I think sometimes we have to be careful that we. We, we we can't say sweeping comments about a, a certain generation maybe there might be more of a tendency with some um but there are still some people absolutely committed to the job as it is as was um and i can think back to when i was in the job when there were people <laughs> that didn't want to do any overtime um so but importantly though there's a, but there's an important difference here that your children have grown up with you in their lives knowing what it takes to be successful in policing yeah po- possibly yeah um yeah it'd be impossible for me to to know outside of that whether that is the the, the overriding factor there's another there's another there's another thing here for me somewhere and this is something that i think cuts across not just this subject but just generally it, it, and it's particularly pertinent i think to the the way that policing is discussed in the media, the way that um, politicians perceive police officers. And, and I think it's this, is that I don't think anybody who hasn't been a police officer for a reasonable period of time, and when I say that, I say probably minimum four to five years, okay? I don't think anyone who has never done that subject uh, never done that uh, job has even the slightest idea of what it is to be a police officer and and i think that's half the problem actually and i don't think i don't think police officers particularly senior police officers are are very good at explaining what it is that we have to do and and that's why we're we're easy pickings um, for meddling politicians and the hostile media, and and I do I do get incredibly frustrated sometimes whenever I read some of these very anti-police headlines, particularly in newspapers like the the Daily Mail and Daily Telegraph and, and the Guard. I mean, they're they're all as bad as each other now. There was a time when certain parts of the media would be generally fairly pro-police in inverted commas and others would be skeptical of policing. The Guardian's always been skeptical of policing, hasn't it? But now it feels like everyone is having a go at the police. And um, and I do think there is something there about people just not having the slightest understanding of what the job's all about. But haven't we done our own legs? I mean, not us and not anyone in particular, but the headlines that the police have made over the last couple of years who in their right mind is going to go out of their way and 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 publicly be on our side it's the the the, the it's never as far as I, in my in my memory of the public been so um f- felt let down by the police um and 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 I think it's incumbent upon the police to do stuff to get people back on board not not for the newspapers to to be supporting us I think the police need to get their own house in order but Steve, do you not do you not think that that's a symptom of what has happened since two thousand and ten? You've got a you've got a you've got a, an organisation that is no longer seen as a vocation um, for people a, voca- a thirty year vocation. You've got a deeply demoralised and overworked and um, stressed out uh, workforce uh, who don't feel uh, lo- feel very unloved. By their own organisation and their own managers, very often, 
Um, and, and before you know it, you've got this horrible, toxic mix of things that create the circumstances where you get some really, really bad behaviour because because the people doing these things fundamentally are not invested in the values or in in the in in believing the things that we believed when we joined. You know, I don't want to sound make it sound like you know everybody today is crap and everybody when we joined was brilliant because it's not. It wasn't. There was some complete useless assholes, weren't there? Whenever we joined, uh, people who who just were useless, lazy and dishonest so let's be clear about that but i think when you when you take when you do something to an organization that was done to the police back in 2010 and you and you and then simultaneously you have this kind of um senior level of manager who just heap more and more and more and more demand on the organization and never ever push back against other agencies like social services or the NHS or anybody else, they just keep on saying, we're going to do more with less. That was the mantra, wasn't it? That was the mantra back in about 2012, 13. We're going to do more with less. It's like, well, when did that ever work for any organisation, you know? So I do think there's something there about the organisation being so demoralised that you, you then start seeing people behaving in this terrible way i yeah i i, I don't know I, I i i i feel it's a bit of a cop-out to blame cuts I, I i do think it's an internal i think most of the problems are internal um and it comes down to poor leadership um and it, it like so one of the things that my next uh of the third that i would i would put right evolves evolves around the cid and I think the majority of problems within the CID aren't to do with cuts; they're to do with how um, changes have been implemented. Um, we, I'm sure we could have introduced the, re, the the reductions in 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 money. To me, don't reflect why managers are poor at their job. Um, they're, they're, to, to me, they're two two different things. And I think that that is what's the biggest impact on staff is just how poor when they look up. The people that are supervising them—that that, that to me is the biggest problem. Yeah, I, I, I suppose I'm, I must admit I, I lean that way in saying that I think you can only blame cuts for so long before you've really got to look internally at the way people are leading and managing people because that's ultimately what you're doing—is leading and managing people well. You know, equally, the workloads and pressures are more—you know—they're so incredibly ten, intense. It's not funny, and I think policing has become more accountable than it has ever been. My only question mark, I suppose, which and I think it's because ultimately policing is that last line of defence in terms of what it actually does. But you see in other public services, it's not to start switching blame at all. But I suppose I'm always surprised that policing gets as much airtime as it does when there are other agencies also struggling. You know, there's been horrific crimes committed by people in the NHS of recent. And none of that seems to have come to the fore and dominated papers. I've always wondered why policing so much? What What is that people always want to see police on the front page of the paper? Yeah, I, I don't know is the honest answer. And I've, I've agonised over that question many, many times, Ollie. Um, I, I'm really struggling. I think there's some legacy stuff there, potentially, that goes back to the, the whole, um, 
you know, the phone tapping scandal where lots of journalists ended up getting arrested, lots of the Leveson, Leveson issues, um, I, I, the, the Tory leading, Tory leaning press, I think, have been hostile, very hostile to police recently. You wonder, well, what's what's the end game in all of this? What 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 are they all hoping to achieve? Because I think uh, one of my recent podcast guests made this point uh, really really well. I'm struggling to think of it was now. Apologies, but to to that person, but I made this point really really well that saying what you want to say to every journalist who writes a negative story about the police when there's probably you know, 99 other stories you could write showing the police in a positive light. What What is ultimately your end game here? Because what's happening is that you're, you're making an already demoralised organisation even more, you know, desperate. And more and more people are, more and more good people, experienced people, the, the 10, 15 year detectives... Who, who can't be replaced tomorrow, they're, they're leaving. So if your objective is to for us to have a better police service, then slagging off the police every two minutes is not going to achieve that. But, but in the last couple of years, we've had, uh, we've had Cousins and Carrick, and the police must have, be it his colleagues, his supervisors, the people that vetted them, We've let the public down as 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 the police. Um, I don't feel that we can we can moan at the moment about how the police are portrayed in 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 newspapers and the media, because really it's the police's fault that we've got to this real low. Um, there's always going to be newspapers that like to have a pop, and there's somebody that'd be more supportive. Um, but at the moment, we I can't I. We we've we well, I say we we're not in the police anymore. But the police, it's in like so. It's up to them now to win back the public trust, not 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 through newspapers, but but by actions and showing the public that actually no look yeah we 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 dropped the ball. We allowed these people to thrive in. I mean, the WhatsApp groups they were in. How many missed opportunities were there in? from their colleagues and and it's one of the, one of the things that i think we need to we need to address and what what needs to work is peer peer not pressure or peer, peer monitoring whatever whatever the word would be as police officers we police the public and we're looking for wrong ones but then when it comes to do it internally it's like we go oh we turn a blind eye because they're a police officer but i think that attitude needs to change and 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 the perception from the outside looking in is that is that's what happens we police just turn a blind eye when it's one of their own um and i i personally don't blame the the papers i don't blame anybody that's having a go at the police at the moment because like i say i, I think the police have brought it on themselves
Well, I think uh, a key part of any response to what you've just described there is to build the capacity to be able to do that, to be able to free up uh, officers' time and to get them doing uh, more of the things that the general public uh, want them to be doing and less of the things that are sapping their time. And and just to go, I don't want to go back to the point we've just been talking about, but part of perhaps part of the reason why the public and the press and the government and everybody else, it seems, has fallen out of love with British policing is because fundamentally it's not doing the things that they want or expect the police to be doing. They're spending far too much time on things that are arguably uh, pseudo-social work, uh, sat for hours and hours and hours at a time in hospital, A&E uh, departments, babysitting someone who's uh, got a mental health issue, um, doing all sorts of things that have got nothing whatsoever to do with keeping the public safe. Um, they're doing them because other agencies either can't or won't um, step up and and uh, do the job that they're meant to be doing. So it seems to me that uh, before we even start thinking about how we investigate crime, bring more offenders to justice and keep the public safe, we need to build additional capacity by stopping doing a lot of that stuff. And then once we've, once we've kind of hopefully successfully pushed back against those other ages and say, listen, you know, I'm really, really sorry that your organisation is is cash strapped and potentially failing. But because because we're doing your work, we are failing here too. So we need to focus on our core priorities. Um, and just to just to kind of build on that, for me, all day long, rebuilding strong, competent neighbourhood policing teams everywhere that that will be visible to the public are dealing with issues uh, in real time, who are stopping things getting worse, who are spotting issues and nipping them in the bud before they escalate. But when they have got to the point where enforcement, robust enforcement is need, needed, they go in and they're kicking down doors and they're dragging people out uh, of their beds at three, four o'clock in the morning or whatever. Um, so rebuilding neighbourhood policing teams, for me, all day long, is the single best thing you can do to reduce and detect crime. Steve, how do we tackle the ever-increasing crime in London? What is your priority as Sir Mark? See, see, I come in from a different point of view as a career detective and I look at the CID as was and as is now and I don't recognise it. Um, so back in 97-ish or something like that, I went on a crime squad. You had to get invited onto it. You had to apply then from there, you had to apply to join the CID, and it was it was difficult to get on because people wanted to do it. There was a queue to get in. Like I say, you, you had to prove yourself to be a CID officer. Then you had to, then then you had to jump through so many hoops, to become a detective and detective constable, and a board and all sorts of stuff. Now it, it, you, it's like a punishment post. <laughs> You're getting stuck in. I've got to go and work at the CID. I don't want to work in the CID. And how have we come from something that people strive to do to, 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 to that now? And we, for me, we need to get back to the CID being a place where people fight to get onto, um, where it's a place where pe people are proud to, to work. Um, and I, I, 
in, in certainly within the Met. What I saw it starting to go wrong when they took away um, responsibility from uniformed police officers to investigate uh, minor crimes, deal with their own prisoners. Um, so as, as, as a uniform officer, I, I was very comfortable arresting someone for an ABH, arresting them for shoplifting or whatever. I would interview them. I would deal with the paperwork. I would take them to court. And then we just took it all away. And suddenly we got all these police officers that weren't, well, I don't want to interview. I've never interviewed anybody. I wouldn't know how to put a set of case papers together. Then they've suddenly brought in this, um, I, 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 can't remember, I, I, investig- I can't remember what they call it, where they're suddenly putting it back into to uniform. And they're like, whoa, we've never done this before. Demoralizing. <laughs> it's just, they've just made a complete mess of it. And someone needs to sit down and say, right, how do we sort this out? What can we do? That's not. They've, they've tried to do it by offering five thousand pounds to to become a detective. Again, it's not about money. Police officers aren't motivated by money. That's not. That's not why they do the job. Um, my son is in uniform. He's got no intention whatsoever of being. Why would I? Why would I want to go and be a detective, Dad? I'm I'm having fun. I'm having fun on 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 my team. We're running around. The next day is a different day. His sister has got a workload coming out for years. Um, why, why would I do it? Um, and if if you if you want to really get deal with the most serious crimes, your murders, your stabbings, and everything like that, um, what you can't do is miss the opportunities of those criminals earlier on. And I, and I feel that we're we're not dealing with crime properly. We're not investigating it properly. We're missing opportunities to stop them before they become that Mister Big in the in the gang. Um, and I, I, I would like to see Mark Rowley really take on the CID and say, right, I want to make it a place where people want to work and are proud to work. And it isn't a place where we're just going to dump people that happen to be on annual leave. And when they come back, they're, oh, by the way, you're in CID for six months. That's not what it should be. But do you not, do you not think, Steve, that part of that issue is, again, going back to, the, going back to this very self-interested senior layer of policing where they've just looked after themselves and they're quite happy to they don't care what's going on around they're not really that interested in in the problems of other people further on down the food chain as long as their careers careers going all right then then they're happy but so there's there's all sorts of things that in the same way that we should have been pushing back against uh social services and the nhs around mental health issues um, and the vulnerability agenda, which has just absolutely mushroomed to the point now where uh, the police don't know whether they're coming or going. In the same way, they should have been pushing back against some of the completely unreasonable and excessive uh, expectations and demands from organisations like the CPS, who are who are now, you know, and have been demanding a full trial-ready file before they'll even authorise a charge, for God's sake. You know, so some of these, it's, I think part of the reason, certainly when I speak to people who are in the CID and you know, towards the end of my career, they were demoralised for a reason, were demoralised because the amount of work that needed to be done just to bring the simplest case to court was now so excessive that it's just, um, you know, you can definitely see. And then there was the change in pay, wasn't it? So that for those working shifts and things, well, I can actually earn more under the sort of the reform agenda that Theresa May brought in. I can I can work, I can earn more working antisocial hours without carrying the caseload of a detective. So why on earth would I want to be a DC carrying like 20 
20 cases at once when I actually earn more as a uniform PC. And one of the things you said, you said there, Ian, was about change. And why does change happen in the police? Um, change generally happens in the police because somebody is going for promotion and they have to demonstrate that they've implemented change at a strategic level. And we all know what happens is they bring in this change, they go on their board and talk about it, but it's the people at the, at the bottom that are having to pick up the pieces because it's all gone wrong. Then someone comes along and realises it's bad and then they implement the change for their promotion. And change within the police generally is not done for the benefit of the job. It's done for the benefit of somebody who's looking for the next rank. And that's that's the system that I think is broken and we, we, we have to address because... Um, it, it it can't be right, can it? It it can't. I mean, I, I I'm I'm Ian. I'm sure you did it. I did it. I I I implemented change, so I could go on a board. <laughs> so I'm a bit of a hypocrite. But if I wanted to be a DI, I had to jump through that hoop. Um, and I'm not proud of it, but I had to do it. And it's like it's not right, is it? We should be implementing change that's that's for the benefit of the job because there's an issue that needs addressing, not not just because change for change's sake, which is what happens. But we are very bad at reinventing the wheel as well. You know, like there is talk that, the, you know, that London is going to come back under the borough scheme in terms of where you're going to have more senior level rank. Again, overseeing, you know, boroughs and obviously reporting into a commander who's then reporting, obviously, to the DACs and up the food chain it goes. So, you know, that was a system which, you know, the people I've spoken to over the past months during the podcast worked and it was a very effective system that was, you know, that people enjoyed working under the leadership framework. You know, there was a good understanding of local crime issues. It was, you know, having the letters on your epaulette meant something, you know, in terms of whether you're Zulu Delta or LZ or whatever the case may be. Is there an argument to go back to the successful systems that actually worked that, you know, have proven methodologies? But we've done something that we can't rectify ever again in London and we sold off the buildings. And that may, may sound like something basic, but we don't have the police stations anymore. We've gone, we've built these big central hubs outside on industrial estates and then we sold for flats the old, the old Victorian Edwardian buildings that we'll never be out. We couldn't afford to buy back again. So we're kind of stuck in, in, in with it at the moment, um, and and this and this is where I would and this is where I would push back actually against you both uh, when you were saying you can't keep blaming austerity, but I'm afraid I am going to have to keep on blaming austerity <laughs> because so many, so many of the issues that we're currently seeing in British policing at the moment are a direct result of austerity. So losing all the estates, going towards uh, super blocks rather than having local custody blocks, which is a massive disincentive to make arrests because you know you're going to have to get yourself and drive halfway across uh, the city in, in terrible traffic and then maybe queue for a couple of hours before you can even book your prisoner in. All of these things um, have happened as a result of austerity. So whilst, yes, rebuilding neighbourhood teams, brilliant, having a much more sort of uh, geographical focus to um, deliver policing services rather than this very sort of, um, you know, centralised model. Uh, all of these things all day long are the right things to be doing. But you're absolutely right, Steve. How, how are you going to do that when you've got no police stations left? Where are these officers actually going to work from? Have you both, I'll start with you, Steve. Uh, there's obviously a new leadership at the helm of the Met. 
uh, Dame Lynn Owens, uh, who I think is an incredible female leader in her own right in terms of her work at the National Crime Authority, and now she's obviously back at the Met. So Mark Rowley, Ian, you've been very vocal in being quite impressed with some of his early decisions and some of his work that he's starting to do leading from the front. I suppose I've always been slightly worried that he could get dragged into the conversation piece. Well, weren't you around the senior executive table when this was all started to go wrong? But I think he's navigated that quite well. Stephen, have you been impressed by what you've seen so far in terms of the turnaround? I, I, honest answer, I'm going to wait and see before I... Um... I think it's I think it's too early um, because at the moment it's just words um, and his, it, let's let's have it straight. He's a politician. You don't get to that that service uh, that high up in the police force without a, an element of being a bit of a politician. So he's going to say the right things. He said the right things on the interview board to get get the job in the first place. Um, I've 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 been we've all been through enough commissioners to know um, the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? it it's 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 putting it into practice and seeing where he is in a year or two. Um, so I'm, I'm sitting on the fence, I'm afraid, on, on Mr. Rowley, and um, it's a wait and see for me. Ian? Hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think certainly, um, I, as you say, I've, I've been very impressed with what he's been saying. Um, what I particularly like is the fact that he is, a, he is making it crystal clear that not only will he get rid of the people who are letting the organisation down who are compromising the reputation of the organization um, but he's also going to be very clear about supporting the overwhelming majority of of good hard-working police officers who are coming to work every day to do a good job and to serve the people of London so I think that that point is really really if he was if, if all he was saying was we're going to get rid of all the wrong-ins and um, uh, and we're going to do that. I'm going to be completely ruthless about that. And and that was all he was saying. I would I would be I'd be wor- worried, but I I am reassured. And I think I think uh, I think Lynn Owens has got a fantastic track record. She's a a, mm. a really good human being as well. I think they both are. So I think it's in very good hands. But I do think sadly there is such a mountain to climb, not just in terms of recovering the reputation of the Met, but also to try and do that against a backdrop where resources are incredibly stretched and where demand is pulling police officers in all sorts of different directions, many of which they would rather not be pulled in. Yeah, I've been, as you have, Ian, incredibly fortunate to sit down with some incredible people over the past six, nearly 12 months that I've been doing the Protect and Serve podcast, you know, and as have you with Tango, Gillette, Foxtrot. Is there, you know, so much talent walks out of the door of policing and, and often never to be seen again and some incredible talent. You know, I sat down with Neil Basu um, last year, who I, I still believe will make a return to frontline law enforcement in some capacity, whether it's with the National Crime Agency or somewhere else, but as an example. But is there is there an argument for some of that incredible talent that walks out to, to, to come in to, I don't know, to, to help, to advise. You know, these are people that were there during an era when policing was successful to some extent. You know, uh, Stephen, what, what would you, if they approached you as an example, say, Stephen, I want help to kind of rebuild the CID to what you knew it to be and when you knew it to be successful. Is that something you would take up as an example? Me personally, no. Um, I, I've, I've, I've done the police and, and, and I wouldn't go back. But I do, I think that 100%, yeah, I think there's... 
again, I said it earlier on. Like when someone walks out with ten years, it takes ten years to replace them. Thirty years of thirty years of experience. I, we 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 are very very. But I always say we because I'm not. because I, I still feel this attachment to the police. But the police are very very bad at tapping into that. I think sometimes ego gets gets it because the people that are that are in the positions, it comes back to they always think they know best. They senior officers, um, and those ones that have left from the past, or what do they know? I know what I'm doing, and and there is there is ego that would would come into that, um, and it would take someone. Um, quite quite a humble person to say well can can I can I learn from you and I don't see that from a senior senior police officer I'm afraid Ian if they could if they picked up the phone and said Ian could you help us and guide us on what you think we should be doing would you take up the offer yeah well it's a tricky I think you'd have to sort of be very clear about what it is that you were there to to do Um, I wouldn't see I think the answer to me for me would be yes but 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 would would I see myself going into back into the police in some form to sort of like be this kind of wise wise old man who kind of t- you know no I don't I don't think that that would be either desirable or welcomed. Um, I, I'm fortunate at the moment in that I'm working uh, you know in a in a in the field of technology doing stuff with law enforcement. I'm still speaking to police officers very regularly and and I'm really interested in in understanding what their current um, challenges are particularly around digital investigations so so i'm fortunate in the sense that i can still put something back into policing mm. but i think that one of the points i think that the media fails to to understand or or the general public fails to understand around police resilience i suppose and, and capacity is that we don't have unlike nurses or teachers or all these other organisations that are broadly similar to the to, to public sector organisations, we don't have a uh, a bank of agency staff that we can pull in to plug gaps. Um, we don't have a an, an army reserve the way you do in the military that you can, at times of extreme sort of demand, you can pull a load of people back into the organisation to plug gaps. That's what I believe the police need to create. And I don't mean being a special constable necessarily. I think they need to create a very flexible um, team of people from all sorts of different ranks. It could be PCs right up to chief officers who are willing to come back. It might be for a day. It might be for several days. It might be for a few weeks or whatever, subject to being able to do that amongst your other demands and your job and everything else. But for those who want to do that, I think it'd be really great. And I would certainly love and welcome the opportunity to, to sort of do some kind of hand-holding with sergeants, inspectors, maybe those who are just recently promoted to say, OK, what are your challenges? Um, how's it going? Uh, you know, and be that kind of confidential sounding board, I suppose, to, to say to them, OK, um, have you thought about this? Um, who's your who are your problem children? What are you doing about them? Um, you know, who are your superstars? What are you doing to 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 make them feel uh, really valued? So so the answer to your question is, yes, I'd really like to do that. But like everything else, the devil's in the detail, isn't it? 
but isn't that the job of the supervisors? They're supervisors anyway, isn't it? I mean, if we had decent management, we wouldn't need that. We wouldn't need someone like you, Ian, coming in and say, because that is the job of a, of a manager, isn't it? Exactly what you've just described. Um, and, and to me, it all comes back to that. is because our man, the, the management in our job, is, is I think, is pretty poor. You, you saying that is actually, like, that's their job. That's what they should be doing, but it doesn't happen. Um, because generally most, not most, I mean, a, a lot of, a lot of people, all they really care about is their next, is their career move. Where, 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 where am I going? What's in it for me? Um, and that's, I think that's, that's one of the biggest problems in the police. Um, I, I, I think back to, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it was, it was all great in the past because there were many, many problems when I, when I joined the police, but, but there, there were those characters that you knew you could go to be it a sergeant, an inspector, a chief inspector. That was their job. They 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 took pride in their team. They took pride in their police station. Um, they knew everybody's names, um, and and you you could go to them for advice, and you, and you knew it would be what's what's best for you and what's best for the job, not not, not them thinking about themselves. And uh, yeah. I, I don't know how that's ever going to change. I think that's a, that's that's a long term thing if it ever does. But I think it's a real problem in the police at the moment. Before we wrap it up, I always think it's important to finish on a positive. Ian, what is what is the biggest positive you see at the moment for policing? I know we've been a bit critical this evening, obviously constructively, which is important, and it comes from a place of real care for an organisation that we're all part of. But for you, is there any positives at the moment for policing in terms of where it's at? I'm sure there's loads and loads of positives, uh, Ollie. I'm sure if I was to go back into my old force and immerse myself back in that organisation uh, very quickly, I would still see, I would, I would still find many, many, many people coming to work, determined to do a really good job, uh, having this highest standards of professionalism, and, and and I suppose that for me is that. Is the is the is the biggest positive is that I've got no doubt whatsoever that across every force in the UK, there will be the majority of people who are determined to come to work and make a difference, um, in spite of all of the crap that's been going on over the last couple of years. My concern, I suppose, is that is that we're not uh, setting them up to succeed many of the barriers and obstacles that are being put in their way either internally by the organization um, or externally uh, is not setting them up to succeed and and a lot of those issues sadly i think will we will see a lot more people leaving um over the next two to three years I would suggest but uh, but no I, I, I I'm a massive believer in the essential goodness of most police officers because I've seen it I experienced it and I know that many of my friends are still serving so that's the positive but we've got to we've got to set them up to, to succeed not to fail. Stephen you've got two kids in the police one in uniform I think one as you said in plain clothes obviously putting getting dressed every day going out there wanting to make London a better and safer place, you know, working hard, putting in the hours, doing what is expected of them. What is the the, the big positive that you can take away at the moment from policing in London? I, I honestly think there's only one positive that I can think of at the moment, and that's the people doing the job. Um, and that I feel they're being let down. They're being let down by their colleagues in very small numbers. They're being let down by the people that lead them. But 
as Ian said, the people that are doing the job, they're doing it for the right reason. Um, and if, if we can support them in doing that, or if they can be supported in doing that, the, I, I strongly believe the police can get back to being that organisation that people are, people trust in. Um, and, 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 and that's what the biggest issue we've got at the moment is, is, is the lack of trust, which is heartbreaking for me when I, when, when I, when I know, like I say, I left six, less, less than 18 months ago and I left some fantastic people doing really, really good work. I know what my kids do. I know what their friends do. My partner's in the job. I know everybody's completely and utterly committed to the job, but I feel they're being let down. Well, it's, um, coming on uh, an hour and a half of conversation which has been an important conversation to have because as i've you know the emails that i've received over the past coming weeks is i reflect on all the positive and i suppose fun stories and the interesting stories and the, the heroism uh, which still exists and i think is still a huge positive in terms of the men and women that, that get up every day and, and and jump on that front line and, and work incredibly hard to do the right thing by the public and their colleagues and um Yes, yeah, so these are courageous conversations and they're ones that often aren't easy to listen to, but I think you've got to acknowledge them. You've got to have a robust conversation about the good, the bad and the, and the indifferent and, and, and crack on forward. But I think on, so on behalf of myself, thank you to Ian and Stephen for joining me this evening. It's been really, really quite interesting to get your views and opinions um, on, on this subject matter. Ian, thank you for turning up. I appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure, Ollie. Thanks very much for inviting me. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I do. Uh, I'm really, really passionate. Anybody who knows me, anybody who listens to anything I've said, anything I've written, I'm really passionate about policing. And uh, and I, 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 I hope from the bottom of my heart that things uh, start to improve very, very soon. And Stephen, equally, thank you ever so much for turning up and taking part in you know what is an interesting conversation with a lot of different elements and moving parts to it. Yeah, no, no it all comes back to what the original three questions were about uh, Mark Rowley. And I, I honestly hope, and I said I'm sitting on a fence waiting to see what he does, but I honestly hope that he, he does deliver what he says um, because I think it's in everybody's interest. Fantastic. Well, wishing you both all the best. I'm sure we'll catch up at some point in the future. Don't go away too quickly because this has all got to upload. Don't click off just yet. But thank you ever so much for turning up this evening. Cheers. Take care. Thanks very much. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Now, it's back to the episode. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited 